She had a uh, filling that cracked. And here, okay. Here I thought she was invisible. Oops, I didn't plug this in. Sorry, guys, if you're online, give me one second. I gotta plug this baby in. Just sorry about that. That's what I got. Well, I can read while you're doing that. Yes, please. Okay. Psalm 119, 129. Hey, mouth, blow, scatter, edge. Your statutes are wonderful. Therefore, I, I obey them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your comments. Turn to me and have mercy on me, as you always do to those who love your name. Direct my footsteps according to your word. Let no sin rule over me. Redeem me from the oppression of men, that I may obey your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach, your, and teach me your decrees. Streams of tears flowing from my eyes, for your law is not obeyed. Mm. Okay, here's what we got. We have a uh, uh, couple things. I have um, a prayer request from my friend Leslie. I don't want to give all the names, but I'll just say she has a prayer request for Stevie, her daughter, who's been having drug problems. She had her second car accident, and she says eventually she's going to kill herself if she doesn't get to... Uh, taken care of there. So we want to keep them in prayer, Leslie and Stevie. And um, uh, we have um, Paul is still, if I believe he's still in the hospital right now. I was there yesterday and uh, I told him if they were getting out today to let me know. And I have not gotten a call when I left to come here at one o'clock. So Paul is just, he got out of ICU. He has a terrible stomach. I think he started to eat again and it did not go well. And it's causing his potassium to go up and down, up and down, his blood sugar to go up and down. I, everything is just bad with him, and he's, he's miserable. So we want to pray for Paul. I haven't uh, heard from my friend Don, who uh, I've been mentioning for a few weeks. He's been in the hospital. He's had bleeding issues, and I have not heard back from him uh, since I think it was Sunday. And so I don't have any update on him. And um, I have uh, Sunday when we were in church, if anybody is watching live streaming and they were with us Sunday, the internet went down. And uh, it was nobody's fault. Sergio could not get back on. And uh, I got home not knowing any of this and having no idea that you guys had bailed out. And um, so I came back to church after I got the uh, update done and the sermon was, was rendering. And it, the router was bad. It, it just completely fried. And so, as a matter of fact, pieces of it fell off in my hand, so it must have gotten overheated or something. But um, anyway, I uh, had a, a fun experience with routers in the past three days, and the company is just terrible. But anyway, um, so that's what happened on Sunday live stream. It was nobody's fault. It just happened. And so I apologize about that. And um, then I know that I need to thank, and probably a lot of people that are on Facebook need to thank people that have been really kind praying for Florida, praying for, you know, the, the church in general. And some people have actually said, please come and stay with us up in, you know, North Carolina or, or uh, Ohio or just all over. If you're leaving uh, Oklahoma, I got one today. Please come up, tell people that if they need a place, they can stay with us. We got extra rooms. And I'm so appreciative of that. And um, having said that, we are right now, we're open. We got three people in the church there. The weather is just as perfect as it always is. And um, as it stands right now, we should be, we will be on the uh, outside of the hurricane. It should go up the East Coast. And if that happens, I don't want anybody to worry because the wind will be going like this, as it does with a hurricane. 
which means that um, we will not have a surge. That the storm surge is always on the right side of a hurricane or when a hurricane comes towards the east coast. And so we won't have any storm surge here at all. So there will be for Sarasota was that we would have between 30 and 70 mile an hour winds during the high point of the hurricane if that continues. And it probably will be the case. It may even be less winds. Um, and uh, finally, if we are safe, if things are safe on Sunday, then we will have church. Even if it's just me, I, we will have church. And um, what I will do is, um, Hedico, if there's a mandatory evacuation from Siesta Key, that means we cannot go back on the island. And so what they do is they raise the bridge, and you can get off, but you cannot get on. And so if that's the case, then if the weather is fine, we will have church. I'll come in and do that. I will not be able to get back online to do the video work, so what I'm going to do is bring a surfboard, and I'll keep it in the back of my car, and I'll wrap up the camera and everything in uh, plastic bags, and I'll ride my paddle my surfboard back across the bay to the house, and then I'll, if we have internet and uh, power, then I'll be able to upload everything and get that done for the week. Do you have a life and, vest? What's that? you have a life vest? Yeah, I have a life vest, so I could even wear that, but I probably won't. Uh, I'm a surfer. So uh, anyway, that, that will be the deal on sure. Sunday. If we're streaming, I mean, if we're not live streaming on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, that means we are not open and there's just too much wind. It's just not safe. But if it's 50 mile an hour winds or less, I'm just going to come here, have the church, and I'm going to ride my surfboard back or paddle my surfboard back to the, uh, the house. And so I'll leave my truck here at the uh, church. So whatever. Um, I just want you all to know about those things, and I'm sorry to make such a long intro. But, um, oh, one more thing. If you could, if you're out there and uh, you... Uh, uh, want to pray for us, please do. If you want to make a post on Facebook, please do. But the less emails I get right now, the better, because there's already a ton of work to do. If I have to take down awnings at the mall, if I have to secure all kinds of stuff at the properties I take care of, Tom here knows about this. There's a lot of work to do for the people you take care of before an earthquake. I'm sorry, a, a hurricane. And so uh, if you can hold off on any emails, like until Wednesday or Thursday of next week, that would be really good, and I'd appreciate it. So, um, because even after a storm, then you got the cleanup, and if any trees fall over, you got to cut them up, and it just one thing leads to another. So, um, we'll let you know. We'll try to keep you posted. But that's the story. And now we're in the book of Romans. We got to pray. So, uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to come here today, and that we're safe and secure in Sarasota at this point. But there's been a lot of devastation. There's been a lot of lot of trouble for people in the islands. Uh, to the east of us and the south of us, and we would pray that you would continue to be with those people, to give them comfort and uh, to provide relief through the open hand of uh, other nations that can help them, because some of them have been utterly devastated. And you know that this is heading our way. It's not out of your hands. You know everything that's going to happen, and each person is going to be affected by it. But we would still throw in our prayers to you, Lord, asking you to be uh, merciful to uh, the people that are affected by the storm, wherever it lands and wherever it does go. And in some ways, good will come out of it, even if it's a catastrophe, because there may be people that will come to know you through it, or there may be uh, uh, just wonderful things that people will see and be able to tell about. So we're going to leave all this in your hands. We're going to thank you in advance for whatever you do, knowing that it is the right thing. And we just commit this hour to you. We thank you for the wonderful word that you've given us. And so here we are in the book of Romans. Thank you for this book. And we praise you, we love you, and we exalt you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And I did forget to pray directly for...
Leslie and her daughter, but we'll try to close with that. So, hello, Sandy. How are you? Hey, Sandy. Okay, here we go. Uh, we're in Romans 7, verse 21. 7, verse 21. Didn't get too far last week. Actually. No, but that's all right. We stopped uh, about five minutes early because uh, uh, it, it just wouldn't have made any sense to do 21. So I stopped at five or eight minutes early. Okay. So, I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Okay. Um, that tells me that you didn't watch the, uh, the uh, Bible study afterwards, so shame on you. Um, I just realized that while you were reading. Anyway, <laughs> give me a hard time. Um, let's see here, 721. He said his and mine's a little different. I find the law then that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. So kind of just said it in the opposite. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, a few points to consider about this verse. The first is that this is speaking of a war which can and does rage within believers. Mm -hmm. The second is that the war can be won. And this is one of the things that every one of us struggles with. I said that last week. I said Paul's going to tell us how he struggled with it in just a few more verses. And uh, it, it's a war that rages in us, but it can be won. Victory can be obtained in the battle. And the way for it to happen is coming in just a couple verses. Third, this war rages in all people. I can tell you, the most stable people that I know eventually will email and say, I've got this trouble in my life. I, 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 I'm sure all of you know that as well. You've got a boss that is cool under all pressure, and the next thing you know, he's over there crying in the corner. Because something will come along in your life that is debilitating and that takes you away and your mind off of the Lord. And uh, so it's something that all people face. If you're out there and you say, why am I facing this? And I don't understand the troubles I'm facing and the difficulties and and uh, I've got one friend, I don't want to uh, say her name, but she's just gone through a ton of grief in the past couple months. I'm Like Paul Stoll kind of stuff, just a continuous stream of trouble. And I know that it's wearing her out. Uh, and I'm not talking about sin. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm just saying that life in general. But sin is a part of everything that affects us, and it will draw our minds and our attention away from the Lord. How much more when you add in things like physical problems and and financial problems and everything like that. But this is specifically speaking of the war of sin. But um, uh, it's, uh, this war rages in all people, but the victory in the war is only available to those who follow the path which is given in the verses which Paul gives us. We're not going to defeat... Most people that are not in Christ don't care anyway. If they have a war raging in them with a sexual sin, they don't care because they're happy with it. If they... Uh, you know, they just have no reason to not be doing what they're doing. And if they get a divorce because of it, well, then they just go and, you know, marry the girl that they're having fun with. And next thing you know, they're getting divorced again. They're not thinking life through. But then suddenly you realize this is a dead end. You come to Christ and you still have this war raging in you. Why is it? Because you haven't applied this to your life. That's okay. It's a, it's a nothing. Um, but anyway, um, uh, unless you know the word and unless you are able to go to where the word tells you the remedy for this problem is and to think on it and to all day long focus on Christ, if you're just going to church on Sunday morning and your life is a mess, there's probably a reason why and you need to get into church. But um, that's the uh, situation there. And then fourth, these verses here do not speak of every person in every sense. In other words, though this premise is true and it exists in the unregenerate soul, it is not all-encompassing in its effect. Too often Christians, especially those in Calvinist circles, 
look at these verses and use them in an absolute sense, which is something you can't do. Um, evil is present in humans. The remedy is only available to Christians. Therefore, non-Christians are absolutely evil. That would be the Calvinist way of looking at that particular issue. They say this is an absolute sense, and let me read those three again so you know what would be on their minds. Evil is present in humans. The remedy is only available to Christians, and therefore non-Christians are absolutely evil. Well, that's wrong. I'm going to explain it more if I didn't give it in my notes here, but this is not right thinking, nor does it take into consideration the obvious truth that people all around the world do good stuff all the time, don't they? We've got uh, Bill Gates, who gives billions of dollars for AIDS research, and we've got people that you know uh, are helping in Houston right now that are not Christians. We've got them all over. They're volunteering their time. They're volunteering. There are people all over the world. They're go- doing good stuff, and they are not in any way doing it in the name of the Lord. Okay, the problem isn't in their good deeds, but rather the problem is in them. God, good deeds don't lead to a relate right relationship with God. Okay, we can do all the good deeds in the world, and we will not be in a right standing with God. However, a lack of relationship with God doesn't mean that somebody is entirely evil. Okay, and I can tell you that absolute evil cannot exist. Even Satan is not absolutely evil. It's impossible. Uh, evil is the absence of good. If something were absolutely evil, then it could not exist. It wouldn't be there. There has to be good in it. He was created by God. The essential nature of his being is still good, even if he is morally completely corrupt, etc. There is always going to be something good. There is not a complete lack of good in anything. So, uh, hello, can we help you, ma'am? <laughs> yes, that's uh, my mom showing up late. But that's okay. Um, so, uh, are you doing okay? Are you all prepared for the storm? Same attitude as her son, exactly the same. She kind of raised her shoulders and went, I don't know. It's going to happen. Nothing we can do about it. So, okay. Um, so, uh, let's see here. Um, it's not right thinking. It does mean the evil in them is a barrier, though, between them and God, so that good deeds they do are a temporary and ultimately futile thing. They are rags before His infinite holiness. And even our deeds are. I got to tell you what, even our deeds are except that they are done in Christ and therefore they are covered by his righteousness. But everything that we do is still tainted with sin. It's in our nature, it affects us, and so I'll read that again. However, a lack of a relationship with God doesn't mean anything is entirely evil. It does mean that evil in them is a barrier between them and God so that the good deeds they do are temporary and ultimately futile. They are as rags before his infinite holiness. Okay, the law, which Paul is speaking about here, the law that Paul speaks of in this verse is not a written law. He's stating that this is a force which resides within us, which he is calling a law because it is as true as if it were written down. Just as gravity is a law, even though it isn't written down, it simply is what it is. This nature of us, this sin nature, is something that is a law, even though it's not something written down, something that it's not saying, thus says the Lord, it's just a part of us, okay? The law that is evil is present with me. Let me read the the verse again so you know what I'm saying here. Um, 21, he says, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. 
The me and the I, uh, like the I and me earlier, is a truth which is applicable to humanity in general. He said me, he said I, he says me again. They're all a general state of humanity. He's not speaking about me, Paul, writing this. He's writing about me, Paul, as a human. It applies to every single person. Okay, The me, like the I, and the me earlier is a truth which is applicable to all humanity in general, not just Paul specifically. Well, law and force would almost indicate that. Absolutely. It can't be just applicable it, to him. It's not yeah. just to him. You're right. The, the fact that he says it's a law is something that then applies to everybody who is under that particular circumstance. And what he's doing is he's talking about a general circumstance, meaning all people, whether they're regenerate or whether they're unregenerate, Christian or non-Christian, it applies to everybody. Okay, And we know this is true because if he's saying me as a Christian, and we know that it applies to non-Christians, then it applies to everybody. So good point. This evil is, in fact, present, even though our will is to do good. So we have this evil nature in us, even though we will to do good. The unregenerate person wills to do good. Bill Gates is out there doing stuff because he thinks it's the right thing to do. Whether it's the right thing or not, or whether his motives are right or not, maybe he's getting tax deductions, or maybe you know his wife gives him a back rub every time he gives away a billion dollars. We have no idea. Whatever his motives are, he's doing this thing for a reason, and he's thinking it's a good reason, when in fact, without Christ, it's not a good reason at all. There has to be Christ in the picture, or the deed is simply futile. Okay? This war that's raging it is in us right here, right now, and the battle lines move as we yield ourselves to God. You just think of a battle. We've got the sin nature, and we've got these things that are pushing back and forth, and as we yield to God, the battle lines will draw nearer to him, or vice versa. He'll come towards us. In other words, when we run the show, the line moves in one direction, and when we allow God to do so, the battle lines quickly move in the other direction. But as long as we are in this body of flesh, we are subject to this evil which is present within us. There's no doubt about it. And it's totally up to you where you're standing with the Lord is. You can say, Lord, I can't handle this. I'm just having a tough time. I'm going to read your word. I'm going to yield to you. I just need you to help take this away from me. And I can tell you that this is a struggle. I can tell you that this is a struggle with people based on the the numerous emails that I get day after day and week after week of people that are struggling. And as I said, I, I got my friend, and she is struggling with physical afflictions and financial afflictions. That affects her walk with the Lord. And she has to realize that. And I know she does. But one way or another, you're either going this way or you're going... There's nothing static in your relationship with God, ever. Nothing is ever static. You're either moving towards him or away from him. And the more you move towards him, the better things are going to be. The more you move away from him, the worse things are going to be. And as I said, it's right here. We're not going to get this by thinking, well, I wonder what would make God happy today. I'm going to do that. You're not going to come to that resolution in your own mind. As a matter of fact, your own mind is always going to take a different path than God's word. It's nature. We say, well, I want to do this. Yeah, it's, it's a force in us. That's absolutely right. This is the only way that you are going to know what God expects. So this uh, whole topic he's addressing kind of blows a gaping hole in the prosperity. Oh, the prosperity gospel, gospel is just absolutely. That, plus the fact I have seen a lot of younger Christians saying that, well, person keeps sinning, so I have to question whether they were ever saved. Right. Like going, like, what do you think you get, like, 
bulletproof vest? Yeah, <laughs> there's no bulletproof vest with Christ. You know, he is our our defender, but we are the ones that will suffer because of our actions. And you're right, there's no bulletproof vest. But, uh, you know, here's a good example about why things should be done properly and why knowing the word is important. I got an email from somebody, and it was about an issue within the church. Somebody had accused somebody of doing something bad, and it was a person in a leadership position. And he said, what do I do? Here, I can't give you my opinion. If I do, it's going to be, well, you know, why don't you call the police and have them do an investigation or, you know, whatever comes to mind. But it doesn't say that here. It says, when you are charging an elder, there must be two or three witnesses. Okay, that's, um, what is it, 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, 1 something. Anyway, so you go to the pastoral epistles, and you see what it says about those type of things. And I, it was, I think it's 2 Timothy 1.19, is that what it is? The first 19 comes to mind, so it's somewhere in 1 or 2 Timothy. And uh, uh, it doesn't matter, because that's what it says. It says that uh, do not bring an accusation against uh, an elder unless there are at least uh, two or three witnesses and blah, blah, blah. One or two. Um, no, I don't know. It's, um, it's verse 19 of one of these. Um, uh, here it is. Um, 1 Timothy 5, 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. What that means is don't even listen to somebody accusing a person. You're not to do it because this is one thing that you will see constantly is that people will belittle a pastor or an elder. You'll hear about it in this town. Well, this pastor was accused of doing something. Well, he didn't do anything. But people love to tear people apart. It's, it happens to mayors. It happens to the president, as we see daily, right? People will make stuff up, and they will say things that are not true. And Paul specifically says you are not to bring an accusation against an elder unless there are two or three witnesses, because anybody can say it. I don't like what that guy preached on Sunday, and I'm going to get him, Right? And so he knew in advance that that would happen. What, how do you know what to do unless you know what this says? Mm-hmm. It's a, you're not going to know that that is what to do. And that's why he emailed me, because he didn't know and he wanted to know what was right. Okay? So there you go with that. But um, hello, how are you? She's got her dark glasses on. She, it, how's your eye today, okay? Good, good, good. The second one done? She had her second one done on Tuesday. And wow. so she's going to have the... The bionic eyes when she finally gets those uh, glasses off in a couple days. But she's doing real well. I, this one didn't hurt as much as the last one, did it? I didn't think so. Okay. So, uh, um, okay. So, there you go. Let me finish with the comments on 21 and we'll go on. Um, yeah, I'll read the last sentence just so you remember where we were. Um, the battle lines quickly move in one direction or another, but as long as we are in this body of flesh, we are subject to this evil which is present in us. In his ever-consistent manner, which Paul is always consistent in what he writes, Paul speaks this same truth in Galatians 5, 16 through 18. He, He says there, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things you wish, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law okay if you're led by the spirit then you're not under the law which he's speaking about right here this war that's going on in us okay so the question is how do you walk by the spirit i've already given the answer twice right here that's right you know the bible and then you can say lord i need you to be with me as i do what your word says 
You say to refrain from sexual immorality. You say to uh, uh, owe no one anything except the debt of love and all of these things. The more you know the word, the more you can rely on the word. And when he says walk in the spirit, the spirit wrote this. This is our contact with God in this dispensation. I say it many, many times, and I always get somebody that comes back and gets angry at me, but I do not believe in extra-biblical revelation. I do believe that people write very good commentaries on the Bible, and then you read those and you say, now I understand what this is saying, because there's a lot of complicated stuff in here, and if you don't know the full counsel of God, it's difficult, and even if you do know the full counsel of God, you forgot what it says there and there, and and it's a giant book full of a lot of precepts. So reading commentaries can be helpful if they're good commentaries, but always read two or three. Don't trust in one, because as I've said, the Proverbs tells you that one person gives his case, and then the next guy comes along, and you say, well, gee, they both sounded good. You have to be able to evaluate what is going on in a rounded way and not just hold on to one single commentary. But this is where we get our information to walk in the Spirit. It's from the Holy Bible. Okay, so life application it is one or it is the other. Fulfill the lusts of the flesh or walk in the spirit. The lines move in one direction or another as we yield to the spirit. Stay in constant contact with the Lord. Speak to him continuously and read his word frequently. Live in a way which allows his presence full control of you always. And the second one, reading the Word is something you know. To me, that's a given. You have to know the Word in order to know what the Lord wants. You have to. But there are lots of people that know the Word better than I, better than you, better than most people, and they are atheists. They don't believe the Word, but they can quote you the Bible better. They know the Bible from the front to back. And I know professors in colleges and seminaries that know the Bible Beautifully, they, they know scripture like you cannot believe, and yet they don't believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. So, reading the Bible is important. It is, it is to me, one of those mandatory things that you're not going to have a right relationship with the Lord without it. But the second one that I read is probably as important after you've read the Bible, is to speak to the Lord continuously. Just you're driving down the road, and you, you know, it, whatever, whatever comes to mind, Lord, wow, that was a really cool thing over there, Lord. Instead of just saying it to yourself, man, that's cool, Lord, that was a really cool thing. Include Him in your conversations. Pretty flower, don't just stop and smell it and say, wow, that's really nice. Say, Lord, that is a beautiful flower. Thank you for that. And the smell, I don't know how you created that. The more you include Him in your conversation, which is to yourself, because it's not just to yourself, even if it is to yourself, the Lord is listening, but when you include him, you are speaking to him, and you're making a way of communication possible, and you're also doing it because you're in Bible study and you're reading your Bible every day, you're doing it with the knowledge of the word. You're getting closer to the Lord at all times, so let me read those again. Stay in constant contact with the Lord. Speak to him continuously and read his word frequently. Live in a way which allows his presence full control of you always, okay? And it's easy for me to say this and you say, wow, I wish I could do that. Well, my wife can tell you I can't do that, okay? She will tell you right now, my mom certainly will too. I don't do this perfectly, but this is what I endeavor to do. I endeavor, she probably heard me 50 times today while I'm on the computer and I'm I'm going from one thing to another and I say, Lord, what do I do next? I'm always asking him out loud with my lips. I'm just saying, Lord, What was it I needed to do? And then when I remember, I say, thank you, Lord. You're including him in your daily conversation, even though it's just you. 
he's there, and like I say, if you're not acknowledging him, it doesn't negate the fact that he's there. He knows everything you're saying, but you're including him in there. So I say that a lot as I'm going through the computer and I'm going from a prophecy update, I'm going to the new prophecy update, which I'm storing for future weeks, and then all of a sudden an email comes in and I have to remember what I was doing and I get sidetracked and I say, Lord, what was I doing? And just it, It's including him, and I think that's a good way of of making sure that you have him in your life always is just acknowledging that he's there. So, verse 722. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. Okay, I want to make sure that mine says the same thing, so I'm sorry, I, I lost my page. But yeah, there's always these differences. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. It's rather close. It says the same thing, it's just reworded a little bit differently. But uh, here we go. Paul speaks here of the law of God. In this verse and in the, the ensuing verses, he will speak of five separate laws. Okay? He's got one in 722, the law of God. In 723, um, he has the law of sin. And that's included with the law and death in verse 82. So you've got the law of God, then the law of sin and death. And then first, uh, third one is the law in my members. Okay? That's 723 as well. And then he says the law of my mind, again, in 723. And then you come to the law of the spirit of life in Christ. That's in verse 82. So he's writing about all these different laws in just a couple of verses. And he's trying to give you a brushstroke of what we are, what we're like in our inward being, and uh, our nature, sin and death, Christ, etc. So he's, he's giving us these things, and if we can make mental images of them, it'll help us as we read the book of Romans to say, oh, I remember, there's the law of sin, there's the law of death, they're tied together, etc. So, without any comment, it should be obvious that there are conflicts between these. So I'm going to read them again so you can think of the con con uh, conflicts between them. The law of God, the law of sin and death, the law in my members, which he has just kind of talked about, you know, we've got this war going on, the law of my mind. Let me ask you, is the law of your mind in accord with the law of God? Anybody feel that way? I don't. Okay? So there's obviously the conflict going on. And then you have the law of spirit of life in Christ. Okay? And he's already shown us contrast between a couple of them in just the preceding verse. And so he's giving, he's laying these things down for us to be able to see that there's a conflict. How is it going to be resolved? All right? So there are those which are earthly and there are those which are spiritual. They war with each other, and they often bring us into testing, into conflict, and into confusion. I suffer with it daily, okay? I know I do. Paul says he has his delight. Where? It's in the law of God. The term delight is the Greek word sunedomai, and this is its only occurrence in the entire New Testament. It is indicating a pleasure which is deep inside, as if in the heart. The law of God is in the inward man's desire of the heart. But who is the inward man? Who is it that he's speaking of? It is actually revealed in the first psalm. So I'm going to take you there. Psalm 1, uh, psalm one, 1 and 2. Psalm 1, 1 and 2, which says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law, in his law, he meditates day and night. Okay? So, let me read you that again so you understand the context. He's got this deep-seated pleasure in his heart in the law of God. Okay? And 
He says, this is the inward man, and it's the person that is, he is speaking of, which is reflected in Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. It's the person that's meditating on God. He delights in the law of the Lord. He's got this wonderful hope in the Lord of the Bible. Okay, That's who he's speaking about. The inward man is the man who already set his thoughts, conduct, and manner of life on the more noble things. The person that sees the good which God has laid out before him and who reaches for it. He rejects the wrong path and instead pursues God. Okay? Now, we can give probably one of the finest examples of this person in the entire Bible. It's King David. Right? And yet, what did King David do? Mm-hmm. Slept with Bathsheba. Right? Killed he her husband. Killed her husband. He took a census when he was filled with pride, and yet he's the guy that probably, as much as any person in Scripture outside of the Lord himself, had his heart directed on the Lord. He's in a cave. He's about to be killed by his enemies, and what does he do? He stops and writes a poem. He may not have written it down in the cave, but he said a poem, he memorized it, and he says, when David was in the cave, or when uh, David's son Absalom is, you know, whatever, something happens catastrophic between him and his son. And in the greatest times of distress in his life, he's not saying, oh my goodness, there's a hurricane coming. What am I going to do? And pulling at his face and worrying about everything. Instead, he's delighting in the law of the Lord. And he's actually writing what would become the law of the Lord. Lord, there's a big storm coming, and I'm putting my trust in you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the way of the ungodly, but trusts in the Lord, and who knows that no matter what happens, you have a place prepared for him. And he just writes, I made all that up, but I'm saying that that would be something that he would be writing about. Well, this hurricane is coming. He's not worried about it. All right, He knows that there's a good end for him regardless of what happens with it. And yet this guy did not always have his heart and mind set on the Lord. Okay, So uh, read that again. The inward man is the one who already has his, set his thoughts, conduct, and manner of life on the more noble things. The person that sees the good which God has laid out before him and who reaches for it. Think of David as I've said that. Everything about David is the man that reaches for the good until he gets his little temptation and he falls. But then what does he do immediately? Afterward, he goes and he writes the 51st Psalm. And he gives the most moving Psalm of all, maybe in the entire Bible, because of what he did, knowing that the Lord is in control. Okay, He rejects the wrong path and instead he pursues God. This is what the psalmist is telling us, and it translates into the person that Paul calls the inward man. Okay, we've got an inward man in us, all of us do. What are you doing with the inward man? How are you directing the inward man? Are you just simply worrying every time? I, I know Sandy isn't, because you went through a giant trial just not too long ago, and you never seemed rattled to me. You were never rattled at all, and that had to come from somewhere. You were perfectly content with it, right? We've got somebody else in here which is still facing a, the same giant trial in his own life, and I never see him break down and, you know, lose woe it. Woe me. Yeah, yeah, woe is me. It's just these are people that have set their heart on the law of the Lord in their inward man, and they take things one step at a time. Other people do not handle the crisis well. Why? Because their inward man is not directed towards the Lord. Even if their head is, and they're typing all kinds of nice things to people about the inward man and Somewhere inside, there's something that is straining at him. And it is, once again, I know that it's easy to say this. I know that it's easy to have a Bible study and to say, well, the inward man is something we have a conflict with, but we can get it under control. And then what happens? 
something happens and we blow up and we say, well, I must not have the good inward. That's not it at all. We all have pressures which will bring us down. I'm not trying to say any person here is super spiritual or any person here doesn't face this. But the more that you talk to the Lord, the more you have the inward man that you're speaking to and connecting with the Lord and desiring the things of God, the less the world is going to afflict you. Okay? That's that's just an axiom. I, I assure you of that. The more you speak to the Lord, the more peace you're going to have when the ball drops. Okay? Life application. There is a proper path to pursue in life. And it is given in the pages of the Bible. In order to follow this path, the wise soul will delight in this beautiful word and will meditate on it day and night. Be wise pursue the knowledge of God as is displayed in the pages of the Bible. That's my recommendation to you because without knowing the Bible and without being in this word constantly, you're not going to be able to face the challenges which come your way. It's not going to happen. When somebody emails me and they say, I'm, I'm absolutely miserable, I'm destitute, I'm just, I'm just beside myself, I always say the same thing. You know what ha- helps me when that happens? I say, I read the 42nd Psalm. And so let's go there now so you know why I say that. Maybe it won't touch you the way it does me, but I tell people, read that. This will help you, I believe. The 42nd Psalm to me is just a wonderful psalm that when I'm I'm really feeling down, I can go there and I can just stop and it'll get me partly, if not all the way out of my woes. Uh, Psalm 42, to the chief musician, a contemplation, which is, I think, the word maskil. Yes, a maskil of the sons of Korah. And then it begins with the most beautiful words and it ends with the most beautiful words and it's just filled with wonder. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul, so pants my soul for you, O God. This is the guy that has got it already. The inward man is directed towards God. So as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they constantly say to me, where is your God? So you think, here you are, you're distressed, whoever you are. You got the distress, you're just miserable, you're, you're crying out to God, and people are saying, see, you're miserable, where's your God? Yeah, you've got your hope in the wrong place. And that's the state that most people in the world would say, well, you know, you've got these troubles, your God is ineffective. Verse 4, when I remember these things... I pour out my soul within me. Instead of being, you know, put down, he just doubles down on his prayers to God. I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God. With the voice of joy and praise, with the multitude, they kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? He's miserable. And then he thinks, why am I miserable? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Oh my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him 
the help of my countenance and my God. Wonderful. I mean, you just think of what he's saying there. He's, he's pouring out his soul saying, I'm miserable, but I'm going to hope in the Lord. People are coming at me because I'm miserable, and I'm going to hope in the Lord. And all the way through there, he just keeps thinking of the mercy of the Lord and the wonder of the Lord. And he ends on that resounding note of victory. I will put my hope in my God. All right. That's where we need to be, and that's where we need to stay at all times, is to just trust in the Lord. So here we go. Verse 723. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Okay, very close on this one. I don't even think I need to read it. It reads differently, but it's, it's very similar in content. Verses 21 through 23 are to be taken as a unit. That's why last week I stopped at 20 and said, we just can't, we just can't get into verse 21. Quit a couple of minutes early because they need to be taken as a unit. Verse 22 and 23 explain 21. I find that a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. 21, Paul, and thus us, will to do good, but evil is there present with him. Verse 22, the will to do good is that he delights in the law of God. This is his inward man. Verse 23, but, as you rightly said, good and loud, but this is the contrast and will be the explanation of the fact that evil is there present with him. There is the law of God, but contrasting that is the law in my members. The members of the body are the flesh, which bring about our weakened state. I'm, you know, I eat too much. I smoke too much. I drink too much. I, you know, lust after this. I want to watch TV and, and, you know, just get up, take care of my problems that way. Whatever it is that we have, it's a war in our members that is bringing us down. Okay, it, it's what bring up brings about our weakened state. When we get hungry, maybe we will sin by stealing food. Right, Proverbs six verse thirty. When we, are, when we allow ourselves to be tempted through sexual enticement, we will sin through adultery, Proverbs 6.32, and so on and on. There's this war that is waging in us. It doesn't mean that we want to engage in it. We don't want to be a part of the flesh, but it's there. You know, they, they say, um, what was it, Adrian Rogers in one of his sermons, how did he say it about the girls? It's okay to look at girls. He says, it's the second look that'll get you. I think that's the way he said it. I, the, the point made, though, is that uh, the Bible never diminishes the beauty of a woman. Rachel was beautiful, right? And she was lovely in form, and Leah had weak eyes. And so he, they're showing us that the Bible says that beauty is okay. You want to read about beauty? Read the Song of Solomon, right? There's some really racy stuff in there. Nothing wrong with it. The Lord created us in that way. But when you let it get into your mind, it starts affecting it. Next thing you know, you're doing something that you didn't intend to do that when you got up in the morning and had your coffee. Okay, this is what happens with anything that entices us into sin. We've got this war which is waging against us. Okay, and uh, as I said, when you're another one that I don't have here, this one is if you're hungry, maybe you'll steal. But also when you're hungry, as I said, my daughter uses the term being hangry. You're hungry and it makes you angry, and so you vent because you're you're out of joint. You know, and that's me. If I'm if I'm hungry, I just I I don't I, I get stressed very easily when I eat. I mellow out. So everybody is different. Some people can handle going without food for a long time. I can't do it. So everybody's different. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15, we see it noted that as believers, our members need to be used for a higher purpose because they are positionally now members of what? Jesus. Jesus. We're members of Christ, and so we need to use our members for a higher purpose. Here's what he says. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? In other words, sleep with the prostitute. Certainly not. This is the war that we are engaged in. The war which exists in our members. Okay? Paul uses that example because he understood that example. Now, he did say, I wish that all men were like me. He wasn't married. He didn't have any desire in women. But he obviously had something that he was writing out in his mind, knowing that that was something that people struggled with. Okay? It is warring against the mind, as he says. Paul introduces a word for warring against, which is found nowhere else in the New Testament as well. It's a long word. It's a long word. Anyway, and I mispronounced it, but that's okay. I this, knew that. Yes, you knew that. This war sets our flesh against our will to do good, and it is a conflict which can bring the greatest preacher or the most noble Christian woman into difficult straits. Okay, nobody's exempt from this, so you don't ever want to say, and there is a point to have mercy on people when they fall, when they slip, okay? But there's also a point when you have to say, we need to talk about this, and, and you know, Paul gives all of the guidelines for church conduct, excluding people from the fellowship, bringing them back into the fellowship, you know, uh, uh, how pastors and deacons are to be treated and how they are to treat others. It's all laid out there. You just have to know the Bible in order to do it. But, as I said, the greatest preacher, the most noble Christian woman, anybody can be affected by these things. Jesus himself noted this war on the night before his crucifixion when he asked Peter, James, and John to stay near and watch with him. What did they do? They fell asleep. That's right. Jesus' words to them show how difficult this battle is, even for those who walked with him. He said, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And what did they do? They fell into temptation. They fell asleep. Exactly what he told them not to do. Peter had a similar failure, which is noted very clearly in Galatians 2, 11 through 21. Okay? It's a set of verses that when you get... I, constantly. This week I got at least five or six emails from Hebrew Roots people asking me, you know, you need to uh, understand that when it says that uh, uh, you're talking about the commandments of the Lord, they're not burdensome and blah, 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 blah. You need to obey the Ten Commandments. You need to obey the law of Moses and all that. And they take all of this stuff completely out of context. If you know these verses, take, it, take them to uh, Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 21 and say, what do you think he's telling Peter here? What do you think he's telling him? And that, seeing as how I said it, let's just read it so you know what I'm talking about. Okay? Do we need to observe the law of Moses? Is that something that we're required to do? Galatians 2, verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, Peter had come to Antioch. Paul is up in Antioch. He's with the brothers up there, okay? Peter came up there. I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. In other words, he was in the wrong. For before certain men came from James, James is the leader of the church down in Jerusalem. We, Jerusalem, we know that from Acts chapter 15. So James sent some brothers up to fellowship with the brothers up in Antioch. Before those uh, men came with James, he would eat with the Gentiles. The Gentiles. What, do, what do Gentiles eat? Pork. 
They eat pork. We're going we're, we're gonna to say they eat pork and they eat everything that's unclean. The Bible never says that they suddenly observed the law of Moses and they stopped eating unclean things that, according to the law of Moses. It takes it as an axiom when you read this that that is what he were, they were doing. And Peter was sitting there eating with them. Oh, no. Okay, so they came. He withdrew himself and separated. Oh, let me go back. He was to be blamed. Certain men came from James. He would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, meaning these Jews coming up from Jerusalem, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. He's suddenly afraid. Oh, my gosh. Somebody's going to say that I was eating with the Gentiles. And now... I'm going to be kicked out of the fellowship. And Paul says he was to be blamed for this. Absolutely. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. Everybody know what a hypocrite is? It's where you have two masks. I'm wearing one now. I put another one on. It's what they used to do in the Greek plays. And, you know, they, they change masks. That's a hypocrite. It's a person that has more than one face. He's playing the hypocrite. Okay? So that even Barnabas was carried away with their Hypocrisy. Barnabas suddenly says, oh my gosh, Peter is suddenly not eating with the Gentiles. I better not too, or I'm going to get excluded from the fellowship. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, what is the truth of the gospel? There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. You are not under the law of Moses. You're freed from the law of Moses. You want to have a pork chop for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, plus bacon on top of it? Do. Okay? So... Um, I, um, when I saw that he was not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature are not sinners of the Gentiles. And he put it in quotes there. It's, it's a, uh, you know, uh, in other words, it's not true that they're sinners of the Gentiles. It's just that that's the perception of the Jews, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law but by faith in Christ Jesus Jesus Christ even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law for by the works of the law no flesh will be justified okay it's as clear as it could be and you can show that passage there to people that are stuck in this Hebrew roots movement and they'll just deny that it says it. They'll say, well, you're misreading that. You've misinterpreted what it is obviously and clearly and explicitly saying. I don't need to go on, but we are not under law. We're under grace. We are not required to observe the law in any way, shape, or form. It's done. It is annulled. It is obsolete. It is set aside. It is nailed to the cross. It is done. Okay? So, and that's, I hate to tell you, that's a part of the war of the flesh. That's why I included it in here is because people that are stuck in the law of Moses are living according to the flesh. They're not living according to the spirit. They are unpleasing to God in their entirety because they are saying that what Christ did wasn't sufficient to make God happy in their lives. That's what they're doing. And so they are completely excluded from fellowship with God when they are living under that set of rules and guidelines. As soon as you say, I need to add something to the work of Christ, or what he did was not sufficient for me, you have fallen from grace. God is not pleased with you, and I don't care how many emails you send me saying the same four verses, taking them out of context, I will never change my opinion about this matter. It is set, it is written in the word of God, we are not under the law, we are under grace, and this is a war that wages in your members. I have my own wars rage in my members, but that one is done. I trust Christ completely and absolutely in that one. So, 
Peter had his uh, failure. When we allow ourselves to be distracted by our weaknesses, such as being embarrassed around your Jewish friends, I had lunch with a Jewish guy that came to Christ today. You know what he had? Damn. Burger with bacon on it. Good job, buddy. It was wonderful. I was so proud of it. Was it today or was it yesterday? What Was it today or yesterday? Today's Thursday. It was yesterday. Isn't that funny? Boy, time just goes. It was uh, yesterday. A lot of confusion these. There week. is. Plus, you get a storm coming and it just, everything goes mm-hmm. off. But, uh, yeah, he had, a, he had a burger with bacon. And so did I. Mine was well done. His wasn't. Okay, um, so anyway, um, when we allow ourselves to be distracted by our weaknesses, it brings us into captivity to the law of sin, which is in our members. That's what Paul writes there, the captivity to the law of sin, and that is what's in our members. There's a cure for our difficult battle, and there is victory which can be had in this war. In just a couple verses, and I've been saying this now for 20 verses, but in just a couple verses, and we'll have time, the good news is given. For those who rely on Christ, there is deliverance from this body of death. As I said, you've got the body of sin, you've got the body of death. It's the same thing. It's just a different way of describing it. Life application. As we struggle with the flesh, we need to continuously remind ourselves that victory can be obtained. When the trials and temptations seem overwhelming, remember that Jesus prevailed, and now through him there is strength to defeat the desires of the flesh Keep in the word, pray without ceasing, and be filled with the Spirit. The battle can be won. Okay, once again, I'll read them. Keep in the word, pray without ceasing, and be filled with the Spirit. Well, the first two will allow the third one. The third one isn't something you can actively do. It's something that you passively do by doing the first two and other things like it. Fellowshipping and praising and, you know, being the man of God or woman of God that it says in the first psalm where you're you know, in contact with the Lord at all times. You're appealing to him every moment of the day. Those are the kind of things will, which will allow you to be filled with the Spirit. But if you don't know what the Spirit has written you, being filled with the Spirit is rather pointless, isn't it? Because, oh, I'm filled with the Spirit. I feel really great about myself. But if you don't know what he's asking you to do, then you've got a great state, but you don't have any knowledge to go along with it. So you're prone to error again. It all comes back to Scripture. It always comes back to knowing the Bible. It always comes back to relying on what God has said. Um, no, I'm not going to say it, but uh, I got so mad at somebody. Um, uh, I've got it in the Prophecy Update, but if we don't have the Prophecy Update this week, then it won't be said. But there's just somebody that this LGBT issue has just got me so angry at a Christian artist. I, I, I'm almost beside myself with it. And I, it, He's somebody that comes up on my YouTube mix from time to time and sings great Christian songs, and I just X'd off of him. I, I, I will never be able to... There's nothing wrong with listening to music of any kind. You know, it, we, I've said this before, but if you think of it, somebody like Mozart writes beautiful music to the Lord, right? It's these, these great concerts which are centered on the life of Christ, and they're, they're wonderful, wonderful concerts. But does it uh, exclude listening to Mozart when somebody that is pagan plays Mozart? No. Right? No, not at all. You're being uplifted. It doesn't matter who plays it, and you can go through this any way at all. You can have a pagan person write a beautiful song about Jesus and it's uplifting and it does good. And then you can have a Christian that sings that song that's beautiful about Jesus and he's doing a great job and he's uplifting you. It doesn't matter. It's a source fallacy to say you shouldn't be listening to that because what matters is what you're listening to, okay? Is it the right thing to listen to about Christ? And if it is, no problem. Okay, having said that, 
I can no longer listen to his music because I can't disassociate in my own mind what this guy said about the LGBT issue. He's let you down. He has let me down to the point where I just X'd everything out of there and I want him out of my life. Even though the songs are wonderful and, you know, he's alive and Jesus is, you know, this and that and one thing and another and woohoo, I just will never be able to listen. It's like listening to old Bruce Springsteen songs now that I know how flaming liberal he is. I, I can never say... That's a guy that I want to listen to. I grew up listening to his songs in the in the high school, right? America and work hard and work ethic. His life is completely contrary to what his songs say, and I can't disassociate it. Now, I can listen to music by somebody else, and if I don't know his background, no problem with that. But if I find out he's a flaming idiot, I just can't listen to it anymore. So you see, you just have to be able to get past those wars, and when it comes to things like that, I can't do it. It's not going to happen. So anyway, know your Bible, be in the spirit, and the way you can do that the most effectively, effectively is to be in the word and then to share that word in your heart with the Lord all day long. That's being filled with the spirit. 724. Question first. The fellow you had the uh, hamburger with bacon on it, is that the fellow you've been going to lunch with for eons? No, 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 no. That's my old boss, and that's breakfast. And okay. he, he's not a believer. He's uh He's my old boss, and that may have been, I had my last breakfast with him a week ago, and he said this may be our very last one because his eyes are so bad he can't drive anymore. And uh, he's, he, he doesn't want to bother his wife to drive him down for breakfast, but I will miss that. I really will because, you know, he's, he's a non-believer to the point where he doesn't even want to know about Jesus, and yet when uh, we're there at lunch, we always have a good time. I might talk about the Lord. He talks about whatever. We just we enjoy each other's company, and I've always tried to just be positive because I'm hoping someday I'll want to know Jesus. But uh, uh, you know, it, it would be sad if that's over. But we'll see what happens. We just have to wait and see. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Seven twenty-four. What a wretched man I am. Oh yes. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Okay, one more verse, and we're going to get the answer. But this is his question now. He's been talking about the law of sin, the law of members. Uh, that wages in my members, and you know I delight in the law of God, and he's got this conflict going on in him, and he is writing this because he is a human being. Just because he's an apostle doesn't mean he's a super spiritual person, aka Peter that we just read about in Galatians chapter two, right? Just because they were apostles, we look at them as if they're up on some type of a cloud floating along, and they were screwed up. They were people just like anybody else, and they had the same wars. And Paul is writing this because he's a human, and he understands this conflict, okay? In Scripture, in Scripture itself, was Paul perfect? Can you think of an instance where Paul failed? He what held, did he, what? He held the uh, cloaks when they... Well, that, that was before he came to Christ, right. okay? But even after coming to Christ, remember he had a paroxysm with uh, Barnabas, mm -hmm. and they separated, and mm -hmm. Barnabas and him are never mentioned as being together again in Scripture. Whereas he did say about Mark much later, bring him, he's helpful to my ministry. He never says that about Barnabas. Mm -hmm. There's no clue in Scripture that they ever reconciled. And that is a failing. I hate to tell you, if Christians can't reconcile, that is a failing. I've had some people that I've... I've uh, gotten in arguments with, and they've defriended me on Facebook, and I've blocked them, and then I've had other people that have said, I want to make good on this, and I'm so happy when that happens, because I don't want to have problems with people, but if somebody defriends me, I just don't want to see them anymore, so if when that happened with the person that said, let's reconcile, I unblocked them, and if they send me a friend request, I'm going to approve it. I don't want to have difficulties with people, 
but if there is a difficulty, I don't want to have that lurking in the background when they're posting to other friends and stuff. It just doesn't interest me because it hurts me here. I don't want to have arguments, and just because I agree differently on a, a particular passage or theology doesn't mean I can't like you. I love R.C. Sproul, and yet I disagree with that guy, as you know, vehemently on some principal doctrines, but they are not heretical in nature, and so I can fellowship with him, even if he's completely wrong, and we know he is, so okay, um, let's see here, did you read the verse 724? I did, um, oh, yes. what a wretched man I am. Go ahead I'll do it again, yes. what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body of death okay, it has been since the verse 5 of chapter 7 that Paul has written of the conflict that he experienced between the flesh and the inward man it's been all of those verses. During these verses, he has repeated his thoughts as if to stress them to us. He has made a comparison, using himself as an example of all humanity. He has used personification, such as the presence of sin in us. He speaks of it as if it's a person. These tools have been used to highlight the state that we as humans are in, and even as believers. We have a war which rages in us and it tears at us as we struggle in this battle. Here he cries out his wretchedness using the Greek word teleporos. It is a word which indicates being beaten down from continued strain. The battle leaves a person as if he is full of calluses and in a state of absolute deep misery. Such a state includes immense uh, side effects from the great ongoing strain of hardship and battle. And you can see it right in his words. Oh, wretched man that I am. He's been in a battle and he's just utterly defeated. The word used uh, the word used only one other time in the New Testament is the one that he says there in Revelation 3.17. Jesus says this to those in the church at Laodicea in describing their wretched state. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is showing them the exemplary nature of their wretchedness because of their, their thinking that they're on a high standing with him when in fact they're just, they're, they're not at all on a standing with him. And this is the same word that Paul uses here. And he says, wretched man that I am, who's going to free me from this body of death? After the exclamatory cry, Paul makes his begging plea to whatever ear will hear him. Who will deliver me? Who is it? It is the pitiful cry of any person who understands and feels the conflict and who desires relief from it. There are several prominent viewpoints on what the body of death that he speaks of here means. A couple different scholars have different opinions. The first is that it is the law of sin which is found in our members which Paul has been describing. Albert Barnes sees the term body of death as a Hebraism meaning uh, something that Hebrew people would say, like an idiom in the Hebrew, um, which denotes the tendency of the body. He says, the corrupt principles of man, the carnal evil affections that lead to death or condemnation. If this is correct, then the body of death is tied directly to the body of sin, which is mentioned in earlier verses. This body of sin has to be done away with, as is noted in Romans 6, verse 6. Thus, the struggle which remains after salvation is real, but it's been defeated. Only we cling to the old self, but in reality the victory is won. Okay? A second opinion is given by the Jew Philo, who says it represents the physical body which is a burden to the soul of man. In other words, our soul is okay, but our physical body is burdening us. 
this body is carried about like a dead carcass. It never rests properly from birth even to death. Now think of that, if you were carrying a dead carcass on you, what's gonna happen? It's gonna stink, it's gonna just be oozing all over you, and that's what he's saying. Our body is a body of death, okay? It's like a dead carcass that our soul is carrying around. However, the Bible teaches that man is a soul-body unity, and that the soul without a body is naked. That's from uh, his letters to the Corinthians. Therefore, if the analysis of Philo is even close to correct, it can only be ascribed to a fallen body, not one as it originally was created for man, okay? The third option is that it refers to the ancient custom of taking a captive and tying him to a dead body as a type of punishment, face-to-face, hand-to-hand, body-to-body. He would then be compelled to drag this body of death with him wherever he went. And so some people are saying Paul was actually thinking of this ancient custom. It is possible that this is actually what Paul was thinking of, and he's merely using it as a description of the ongoing battle that we face. We are alive, but we still carry this body of death with us. Will we break that, break those chains? Will we be free from the corruption which clings to us, infects us, and weighs us down? Who? Who will free me from this body of death? That's what he's asking. So you have three possibilities. Life application. Yes, there is corruption in our earthly, fleshly body. We drag around the consequences of our past sins, and we often add to the corruption through more sins. But there is a way out. There is victory in this battle if we will but yield to Jesus. He knew no sin, and he who knew no sin made us was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So let us endeavor to truly live as if this is true. Okay? Verse 725, we'll follow along with what I just said. Go ahead. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's it? That's all they put? Well, oh, there's more. Okay, good. So then, I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Okay, close, but I'm still going to read it. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That means he's the one to free me from this body of death. So then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Okay, comment. Chapter 7 has led us time and time again to the conclusion that we are fallen beings in a real predicament. No matter what we will will to do, the flesh overrides that will, and we do what we will not to do. The impossible dilemma for fallen man is resolved through the person of Jesus. Paul acknowledged that his wretched that his wretched state was what existed, and then agonizingly asked, "Who will deliver me from this body of death?" The cry was made for any person who truly wants to be free of the corrupt nature that they were born with. Jesus explained the dilemma to us when speaking to the people under the law. Here's what he said in John chapter eight. Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, "If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed." And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. We have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. 
Okay, so here's the question I've proposed this several times. I want you to think it through. Let me read it again. Uh, um, I say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. And at the end he said, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. What does that tell you? By law... Means that, that you're not going to be held to the consequences of that law. But why? That's right. Why? Because you're in Christ. You're in Christ in the law. By uh, law is the knowledge of sin. Okay? How could we, how could he say that to us unless he was the fulfillment of the law and we were not under the law? Because if we're under the law, then I guarantee you, by law is the knowledge of sin. And he says, in a slave, to, I'm sorry, I say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave of sin. Well, if we're under the law, then we are sinning. The law has made that perfectly evident. From Leviticus, the moment that the law was given, in Exodus actually, but uh, in Leviticus with the ordaining of the high priest to be their mediator, on the first day of the last day of their ordination, the first day of their full ordination, they're sinning. The law cannot do anything to keep people from sin. They were sinning before, right when the law was given. They were sinning when their mediator was installed. They sin all the way through the Old Testament. And people can dare to say to you, I obey the commandments of the Lord. They're not burdensome. And they take all these verses out of context and they say, see, I'm observing the law of Moses. When in fact, he said right here, therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. But he just said, if you commit sin, you're a slave of sin and a slave does not abide in the house forever. If you're sinning because you have the knowledge of the law and you violate the law, and he says a slave does not abide in the house forever. You everybody see the logic in that? Mm -hmm. You cannot be under the law of Moses and be a child of God. And if you are a child of God because you called on Christ and then you went back under the law, he has put you outside of fellowship and you will receive no rewards when you stand before him. I can't tell you how important this precept is. I know I say it 50 times every week, but this is what Christ came to do, was to free us from the burden of the law and to give us grace. But grace is not licensed to sin, and that's what Paul is writing about afterward. I've got this war in me. I know I'm freed from sin's punishment, but I still have this war in me. So we don't have license to sin, but at the same time, we are not under the law. You want to eat your pork chop, go ahead. Okay, so... Um, uh, I've read John 8, 31 through 36. As Paul has shown in this chapter, the fact that they were under law only magnified their guilt, a guilt that all bear even from birth. His explanation of what Jesus claimed during his earthly ministry has been very clear. It's been very concise. Conscience could do nothing to resolve this problem. The law could do nothing to resolve it. And in fact, it only exacerbated the dilemma. And what we, in our human weakness, could not do, where every single thing else failed, everything, Jesus prevailed. The release is found in him. Another exposition of this is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where the earthly man, Adam, representing all of humanity, is contrasted to the heavenly man, Jesus, to whom we move when we call on him. Similar concepts are identified and explained, and the end result is given with words which confirm the thoughts of Romans 7 in that chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, let me read it. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, let's see here. 1 Corinthians 15, he gives you the, the final result here. He says in um, 15, right down here. I'll read, uh, let me go back to 54. So when this corruptible 
has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Remember, he just talked about the law of sin, which is brings about death, okay? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? And he says here in verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. You have the law, it leads to sin, it leads to death. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? He's very consistent. He says the same thing, but just in a, a different way in 1 Corinthians 15. If you want to be under the law, sin is evidenced and you will die. If you want to come to God, you do it through Jesus Christ and you will live. Now, I, I don't understand how people can pick up the same Bible. And, you know, one guy sent me this long, tedious email this week, which I couldn't respond to because it had all these bugs in it that he sent along with it. But he was talking about all these crazy things that... Uh, uh, you need to do in order to be pleasing to God. And one of the things they do, here's how they get you. It's like King James onlyism. He says, King James is a corrupt Bible because it deletes the name of God like 3,000 times or something. And they, the name Jehovah, or they say whatever. I don't know how, what they translate it as. But anyway, they say, they say Lord. And so that's a corrupt Bible. And so this is the true Bible because we've taken care of that corruption. And what they do is they scare people into bad theology and by saying something like that. Same thing as King James Onlyism, where this is the only true Bible and all the rest are corrupt. And if you don't read this one and you have to buy our copy of it because it's the right one, and then we get all this money because we don't have to pay copyright fees. And so it costs us a dollar to publish this, and we sell it to you for $50, and we make $49 a profit, and you pay the shipping. Right? But they have you in bondage when they do this, and that's what they've done with this Bible. They've taken it and they've said instead of the Lord, they say Jehovah or whatever they use in there. And they say, see, you're reading a corrupt Bible. When in the preface, what do they do? They explain why they use the term Lord. Okay, And they explain not only why they use the term Lord. If you have any decent Bible at all, we'll go there really quickly just so you can see what I'm talking about. When you buy a new Bible or when somebody sends you a new Bible... This is here for a reason. It's called a preface. They have instructed you on why they have made certain choices that they've made. If you don't read it and you have a crummy Bible, it's your fault because you didn't read the preface. Okay, the purpose. In the preface to the 1611 edition, the translators of the authorized King James Version, known popularly as the King James Bible, state that there it was not their purpose to make a new translation. Then they go and they explain it going on. Okay, same thing there. A living legacy. Complete equivalence in translation, devotional quality, the style, the format, the Old Testament text. They say verse numbers are in bold. Oblique type in the New Testament is a quote from the Old. They tell you everything you need to know about why they've done what they've done and the mechanics behind it. They give you Old Testament. They say what um, uh, manuscripts they used, why they used them, the New Testament manuscripts. They say exactly what they use. When they refer to another one, they say all of these things here. They go on and on. New King James translators' notes. They give little notes in there. And they will say all of these things to tell you why they have done certain things that they do. And normally, what they will do, here's all the abbreviations. Here's the abbreviations. And normally, I don't know if they do it in this one here, but they will say why they chose the word Lord. And they'll explain exactly why they did that. And they'll say we use Lord, all capitals, means Jehovah. So you, all you need to do if you want to say Jehovah is just when you come to all capitals, L-O-R-D, 
You just think of Jehovah. They're not changing anything. They're doing this for a reason, which they explain there. And then if you have a capital L, let me write this down so people can see this, because there are some people that have probably never seen this. It only take two minutes. But this is, I don't know what got me onto this, but I, it's a passion of mine not to be stupid with, with your uh, reading of the Bible. L-O-R-D. Those are all capitals. When you read it, most Bibles, and if it's not the same, they will tell you, but most Bibles say Lord. And that means the divine name, Jehovah, Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever, however somebody, Jehovah, however they say that name, that's what that is. And so when you, and I'm going to give you an example, which I love to give people because it's such a good passage to understand all three of these. You've got Lord, and then you've got another one, and they say it's L-O-R-D, three small letters, right? Everybody count, one, two, three, okay, that is always speaking about God, but not saying his name. When Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, had his vision of the Lord, he looked up and he said, I saw Adonai, high and exalted, right? Adonai is a way of speaking about the Lord without using his name. Adonai. And then they have this one, L-O-R-D. I know my hand rings getting bad, but it's getting low here, Okay. How many capital letters are there? Zero. Zero. That is all small. What does that mean? We'll say in modern Hebrew it means basically mister, but it's just a way of speaking respectfully to a person. Like, we'll, we'll say mister, but it, you know, it, it would be more like my lord. All, you know, small, uh, but we'll just say mister. It's a good way of just addressing another person. Now, you can have another word, lord, my lord, my lord, oh my lord, all small, would be the word Adoni. Is this the same as this? No. No. There's an A there. That's speaking about the Lord. This is speaking about my Lord. Because this is possessive. I is possessive. My. And then Adon. My mister. Okay, so you have Lord, mister. You've got Lord, the Lord, speaking about him without using his name. Then you've got the Lord. So, Having said that, and you all have that, and I saw that you wrote, wrote it down, so now you didn't know that. So somebody here benefited from this. Turn to Judges chapter 6. Okay? This is just one of those fun passages that will help you to understand this. And this is why we don't want to get stuck in crummy theology by saying this is the only proper Bible version, and they've changed the name of God 3,000 times and scaring you into something that is not true. Judges chapter 6. Gideon is... They're doing his stuff in Judges chapter 6, okay? <clears throat> and it says, we're just going to go to verse 11 of Judges chapter 6. It says, now the angel of the Lord, all capital, the angel of the Lord, so it's the angel of Jehovah, came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was an Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizorite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites, okay? Now, we know that this is the angel of the Lord, because it says it. And if you want to say Jehovah every time you come to capital L-O-R-D, do it, because then you have a mental idea of what's going on in the Bible. Gideon doesn't know that this is the angel of the Lord. Verse 12, and the angel of the Lord, it repeats it again, said, uh, appeared to him and said to him, the Lord, L-O-R-D, Jehovah is with you, O mighty man of valor, right? So you have the Lord saying to him, the Lord is with you. And Gideon said to him, O my Lord. How many capitals are in that? None. 
He doesn't know who he's speaking to, so he's saying this word right here. Oh, Adoni, right? If the Lord, Jehovah, oh my Lord, if Jehovah or Jehovah, whatever, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord, Jehovah, bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord, Jehovah, has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord, Jehovah, so now we know that the angel of the Lord is the Lord, because it first said the angel of the Lord came, and then it says, then the Lord turned to him and said. So we know that the angel of the Lord is Lord. So now we have three things going on within two or three verses. Okay, the angel of the Lord is the Lord. Jesus is Jehovah. He is having a manifestation of himself in the Old Testament. He is revealing himself to this person, Gideon. Okay, so, but now the Lord has, for, okay, then the Lord, Jehovah, turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel. Have from the hand of the Midianites, have I not sent you? And then in verse 15, we add in a fifth one. It says, so he said to him, oh my Lord, how many capitals are in there? One. 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 There's one. If they then they didn't translate it right. It says Adonai in the Hebrew. Oh my Lord. He's speaking to the Lord about the Lord without using his name. Just as I Isaiah said. He said, I saw the Lord, Adonai, high and lifted up. Okay? Right. He says, so he said to him, Oh my Lord, if you read your footnotes, these uh, that's why I always tell you, read the footnotes. Forget the commentaries, read the footnotes, because that's where all the mechanics of the Bible are. If there's something important there, that's where it is. Oh, my Lord, Adonai. He now knows that he's speaking to the Lord. He first said Adonai, and now he's corrected himself. Adonai, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And Jehovah, the Lord, said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Okay? And then he said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, blah, blah, blah. He wants to make a sacrifice to him. You would never sacrifice to anybody but the Lord, right? So now there's another thing. There's a sixth confirmation of what's going on here. So he goes and he gets the, the uh, sacrifice. And then it says in verse 20, somebody read verse 20. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. Okay, do you know there's an error in that? Because it doesn't say the angel of God. It says the angel of Ha Elohim, the God. It says the angel of the God in the Hebrew. It doesn't say just God. It's making a very specific point that this is the God. Because Elohim in the Bible just simply is like saying somebody else over there. It's kind of another place. That's all that Elohim can be God. It can be a judge. It can be a false God. Elohim is just a term God or gods, okay, right? But there it has indefinite article in front of it. So your translation is wrong, yours is wrong, yours is wrong, this one is wrong. Nobody, I don't know one translation that got this proper. What I, translation are you using? I'm using the New King James Version and it's wrong. It says, so the angel of God or the angel of God. It's wrong. It's the angel of Ha Elohim, the God. So there's it's funny, a, in 21 they, they, they make a correction then. It says the angel of the Lord. Yeah. It doesn't say the angel of God. It's saying that the angel of the God is the angel of the Lord, which is the Lord, who is Adonai from... You see, everything comes into play when you are looking at the Bible. Oh. And if, if you don't know these things, then you've got all kinds of 
bad theology going on. Right. This is There's, making a very specific point about what's going on at one moment in history right. to make sure that his purposes are effective. Back to 17 for a second. Yeah, go ahead. Notice that it goes, and then he, small age, said to him. That's Gideon saying to the Lord. But the H doesn't matter. There are no capitals in Hebrew. Mm -hmm. That is why when you have a capital H on something or any, it's not there. But in English, right. they're, they're signifying that it's, it's Yes, that's him. correct. They're saying Gideon is saying to him because they know, the him. translators know that this is God. Right. That's right. right. Mm -hmm. But in the Hebrew, it doesn't say that. You just have to know what it's saying. But you see how important that is? Oh, yeah. And you see how stupid now it is for somebody to say you've got a corrupt Bible because it doesn't say the name of Jehovah? Because then they explain that the Lord of the Old Testament is what? Jesus. The Lord of the New Testament. And so they use the word consistently, Lord, through the Bible, so that you know that we are basing our translation of the Bible on Jesus. Christ. That's why they have done that. That is why it's important to not let people scare you in your theology. You're free from that kind of stuff, not bound to it. Um, I'm going to finish so, this chapter. So the example of Abraham and the three visitors, the same thing, right? Same thing. It says specifically, the Lord. It is Jehovah. There is no doubt he walked up to Abraham. So no doubt. Abraham knew it was the Lord. Oh yes, he knew it. I, okay, he, so it probably I because there. I had the understanding it, that he didn't know. No, he at knew. First. No, he knew. There's no okay. doubt the way he approached him, and every, he'd already heard his voice many times. He knew that this was the Lord. There is no doubt about it. Okay. So there you go. But I need to apologize. To somebody. Oh well. Yeah. Let's really quickly. We're almost out of time today, but we'll read that account very quickly. But yes. He, he knew that it was uh, that, that that was the Lord. You can tell just by his actions, by what he says. It says, um, where was that? Uh, chapter uh, Abraham 100. No, that's not it. He's going to be born. It's chapter uh, 20. Abraham journeyed. Abimelech, that's not it. Anyway, I'm not going to find Oh, two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So chapter 18, the Lord appeared. Jehovah, Jehovah appeared to uh, him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the door to meet them, bowed himself to the ground, and said, My Lord, capital, Adonai. But he hadn't spoken yet. It doesn't matter. He knew who it was. He'd met him before. Okay. He, he knew the Lord. There's no doubt, because he uses the term right there, Adonai. He's only speaking about the Lord to the Lord. So he knew it, and he said, um, uh, Adonai, if I now... Find favor in your sight. Do not pass by your servant. He knew that it was the Lord. Okay, so we're going to finish this. we got two minutes and we're done. Um, I read you from 1 Corinthians 15. For all of us, there are choices to make. We can stay in Adam and we can die in Adam or we can move to Christ Jesus and live with him. Okay? And even in Christ, we must choose how we will conduct ourselves as we await our glorification. Will we serve the law of God and live lives of holiness, or will we serve the flesh and obey the law of sin? The answer should be clear to each one of us. Now that we know the remedy, let us pursue godliness and holiness through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one that frees us from this body of death. Life application. How do you serve the law of God with your mind if you don't know the law of God? Anybody? If you don't know it, how do you do it? It's just not possible. That's why we're here in Bible study. That's why we go off on tangents because something comes to mind, then you have a question, you have a question. It's because we have questions we want to know the Word of God. Never be afraid of asking a question here. If we can get an answer right away, I will. If I can't, then I'll go get it for you, and I'll either email it to you or try to remember the next week. But that is why we have these Bible studies, okay? You cannot 
serve the law of God with your mind unless you know the law of God. It is incumbent on you to read and know your Bible. Otherwise, your aspirations for following God are no better than a cup of dust on a really hot day. Come to the waters and drink freely from the fountain of God's word. Okay? Great stuff. All right. Tom, would you close us in prayer today? And please remember Leslie and her daughter. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we, uh, we just thank you for this time to come together and study your word. Uh, as always, I've learned something new tonight, Lord. Thank you for that. And, uh, we pray for Stephanie and her daughter, Lord. What's going on there? You know all about it, Lord. I pray that uh, this young lady would have a, an awakening. Her eyes would be open to what she's doing and, and what she needs to do to rectify. And when you keep going. Would you pray for each and every one that uh, has been in the path of uh, Irma, Lord, and uh, who's... Uh, going to be in that path in the future, Lord. Of course, it's our prayers that it would veer away from us, Lord. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know best. Yeah. We just, uh, we, again, we just leave that big people hand as well. We just thank you for who you are. We thank you for all you do for us every day. But most of all, we do thank you for sending your son to die for us. Praise your mighty name. Jesus. Jesus. Amen. 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 Okay, we got this giant class that has to turn around and say goodbye to folks online. So let me back this baby up here. We got a break. There we go. Okay, have a wonderful week. We love you. Maybe we'll see you Sunday. If not, I'm sorry in advance. If we see you, hey, great.